You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 152nd episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I'm excited to interview one of my colleagues and dear friends, Carmela Navarro, about her work with the military and mental freedom. Carmela Navarro is a licensed clinical professional counselor in the state of Illinois since 2005. She has a master's of science degree in human services and psychology from National Lewis University. Her areas of expertise include resiliency training, suicide awareness, domestic violence counseling, professional coaching, and navigating individuals to remain resilient and courageous. Carmela has experience supporting military service members and their families, healthcare professionals, and crisis responders since 2007. She's the founder of Heroes for Life, and she owns a private counseling practice, Connect for Balance, working with individuals. Thank you so much for being with us today, Carm. You're very welcome, Kim. One of the things that has Carm near and dear to my heart, there's many things, but she is a big supporter of my work. She's taken a choice theory training with me. She's done coaching training with me. And most recently, she has taken the training to implement mental freedom in her work with her clients so that she can help out with the research project that I'm doing with mental freedom. Would you be willing to share with us how you've been incorporating those concepts into your work, Carmela? Absolutely. It's funny, when we first started talking about coaching and counseling, I think one of my biggest questions was, okay, so where's the line? Where's that line that is, you know, well, no, this is more of a counseling issue. This is more of a coaching issue. And you actually said it when I did your coaching training that you've probably been more of a coach than a counselor because of the work I do. Which is true, especially when I was doing program management with the 85th. It's an Army Reserve unit. When we started in the basic training with the reality therapy choice theory, I was pretty drawn to it because that's kind of been my mode of treatment. I'm a very upfront kind of person. I've worked with you know a lot of clients from my internships were with domestic violence and sexual assault. And I had the blessing of working in a, a group setting with women and also a group with men. And I think that's where I really sharpen those skills because you want to be effective as a group leader and you also want to still be supportive and empathetic. I think that's kind of where it started and what is like being real as far as reality therapy, allowing people to know they have different choices. They have the ability to choose and can choose differently. And then it is as my career developed and evolved when I was working with the soldiers, as you know, because that's where we met, you don't want to kind of fluff things up or beat around the bush about certain things because working with the military is very bottom line up front. What are we doing? What's our mission? How are we going to accomplish it? When we were developing our program, I still used a lot of choice theory, reality therapy with our program and with the team that we developed. But in my private practice and throughout my career as a counselor, I've always done that. I think I've always incorporated the tools that we learned in in our basic training and even in the coaching. I did the coaching in 2019 in November, and then in February, the world shut down. I was still working, but trying to figure out how to navigate that. 
The mental freedom training was amazing. It just put a nice topping on the work that I want to continue to do and gave me even better tools to use with clients, whether it's in a clinical setting or a coaching setting. How do you see those concepts fitting in with the military or do you? Actually, yes, because the biggest thing is, especially with leadership, is the responsible, response able. I love that. I've probably used it before, but just worded it differently. And I use it with clients. I have different leaders in my, that are, these are not military clients, but you know, it's leaders and professional helpers and police officers. And you use those kind of words because their job is to help others, but their job is also learning how to not carry it with them all the time so that it becomes disruptive. When you work with professional helpers, you want to give them the ability to know that they still do good work, even though they might hear otherwise from outside sources or things that happen in the news and you know, media and whatever. You want them to know that they're still purposeful and can still be significant. Their job tells them they have to be responsible for lots of things. They still are allowing others to kind of know where, where they have the ability to choose what they're doing and how can I allow this person to be able to do the best for them. Or if they choose to go in a direction that's not healthy or that's toxic, then they're going to have to manage what happens outside of that. How do you deal with that when somebody you're working with chooses a behavior that you think is not in their best interest? How do you not carry that with you? How do you not feel responsible for that? I could do a much better job of it now. It's taken me a long time. When you said I've been a counselor since 2005, it's over 20 years. What the heck? <laughs> very seasoned. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. It's taken me a long time. And honestly, it's as a parent of two 20-somethings, that's where I've been really tested. And I remember our conversations as parents. First met, we were talking about these young men and your boys were, I don't think you have your grandkids yet. You might have had one. My boys are 39 and 37 now. So yeah, so, so over a little over 10, 12 years difference. And mine were teenagers and you were laughing at me because you're like, oh, Carmen, you can't control that. I'm like, oh, yes, I can't. <laughs> and so now as they're young adults, it's so important. I've used this work in my own life because I recognize it's really much better to allow them to kind of manage it themselves. You know, as mom, of course, as an adult, maybe some parents can identify with this. We think we know the best for them, but do we really? We see the things happening because we've experienced it, but we got to let them figure it out. You know, we have to let them become the men, in my case, and the men that they're going to be. And sometimes that's really, really hard because we love them, but they turn out okay. In doing this work on myself, if I don't practice my own ability to manage taking on things for other people, then I can't do my job well because I'm just exhausted. I'm burned out. I'm tired. It's having healthy boundaries with the people you love the most. That is the biggest test. Yeah. Allowing them to be able to do the things that they do well is a good thing. And even if they don't do it well, it's still a good thing because they're going to have lessons and opportunities that come out of that. That's right. It's how they learn. Right? Yes. Thank you for that. Because there are many times where I'm like, okay, I guess I can't control it all, right? <laughs> I don't know how many kids there are out there that are grownups now who, when their parents said, don't touch that stove, it's hot, had to touch the stove. Anyway, we don't often learn from other people's mistakes. We have to make our own and have that learning be really personal for ourselves. Absolutely. So, 
I have always admired your work with the military because you have been fully immersed in it. I only did the Yellow Ribbon program on various weekends, and you have much more up-close and personal work that you've done with the military. I'm curious what you think are some of the biggest problems that our military members face as it relates to their mental health. I actually think that certain things have gotten better and there's still work to be done. When I started being embedded into the program in 2016, I was learning a lot. I had to learn a new language, the right do's and don'ts, and how to speak to certain people and communicate in a way that I could be heard and understood and vice versa. I can understand what they're saying. Lots and lots of communications done through emails and phone calls, mostly emails. And then Teams was huge as far as getting on a call and you're not seeing somebody, you're just kind of hearing the voice through video chats that weren't video, they were more audio chats. Stigma around mental health has improved with the military as far as it being less stigmatized. It's encouraged to utilize behavioral health services. It's not a stigma to even go on full disability after you retire or while you're still in. It's almost like a badge of honor in a way, because what our soldiers and our service members commit to, like literally commit their lives to when they are putting their career and retire, you know, and they're like, okay, I'm going to retire that whole transition into a life without going to that installation every day or that reserve center every day can be really shocking. Even just diving into my practice full time and not having that full time job. It's like, well, wait a minute, you know, it's taken me a lot longer to adjust to it than I thought. But when it comes to our service members, it's getting comfortable talking about things that most of us don't want to talk about when it comes to suicide and mental illness and mental health, depression. We have some great leaders in our commands that give us permission to do that. It's about really connecting to those leaders and getting their support because when you have it, the rest will just follow. It's really awesome. When we created the suicide prevention program, that's where it started which leaders will be supportive of us. And we were very fortunate at the 85th that we had those people that were like, yeah, let's do this. The stigma has still got to be worked on, but we're getting better at it. Face-to-face communication has gotten really tough because everybody wants to just do a Teams call and not in person. I think trainings need to be in person and not virtual because that's hard to get a good feel for your audience as well as get them to participate in something that's important. Right. You have done a lot of work in the area of suicide awareness, helping people to intervene if they feel Mm -hmm. that someone they know may be thinking about suicide. And I know civilians are marginally aware of the high suicide rate among our service members. Mm -hmm. But we can never know how many suicides have been prevented because of the workshops that you've done. But what is your sense in the suicide awareness workshops that you do and training other people to take Mm -hmm. the reins on that and to help people? How helpful do you think that is? And what would be your guess about how many suicides have been prevented by that initiative? I always would say quarterly meetings and reports and numbers, very metric centered. And so I would always say that if I had an ideation, I'd take it. I'd rather have an ideation than the attempt or an actual suicide. And so what I learned one year, I think it was 2019, we had a high amount of ideation and we had no suicides and I think an attempt or two. That means people were talking. People were talking to others. And they were reaching out, asking for help. I don't know what to do. You know, this is what I'm thinking about. So that was a good thing. 
after 2020, we actually spiked in the number of suicides because we were not connecting to each other. We weren't checking on people, or if we did, it was like a phone call or a Teams call. And we had the highest number in 2021. Fortunately, we were able to get back out there and start training in person. And so that was really good. The team was awesome. And I worked with other managers who were also really awesome because we all cross boundaries. So we're spread out across the United States. So we could reach out to anyone if there was something going on and we're not right there. We had somebody else with boots on the ground. The commands were great about, hey, I need help. They knew that, okay, we can call you and we'll work it out with, okay, who's here? Who's there? What do you guys need? We developed support post-incident. So we did like a post-vention where we would go to the unit and support the soldiers. We call it training, but I call it support. Not so much the PowerPoint, but just talking about meeting people where they are and where are your strengths and how you can use those strengths when there is a traumatic incident. Commands did a really good job of bringing their people together and kind of open forum of let's have a conversation. And that has been different. That was different. So I thought that was really cool. That sounds great. I had one other guest on the show in my first yes. or second season, Dr. Richard Doss, who does a lot of work in suicide mm-hmm. military. And he had a theory about what causes the majority of the suicides. I'm wondering if you have a thought on your end about what could be going on in our military members' lives. And I know that Richard Doss felt that it was not combat. It was something else. It's disconnection. It's disconnection from your comrades. It's disconnection from your purpose. That I think is the hugest reason. It's not having the ability to manage all these things that are coming at you because when you're with your battle buddies, you've got a team of people. I miss that the most myself in going to the office and seeing my ladies that were, you know, we had our special programs office and I had my ladies there and really miss them. When that is where our service members might feel the most disconnected because we're also spread out. They move around, they PCS every two to five years. Because you have to explain that. we oh, have a They, they go to a different duty station. It's, it's a change of station. They'll go. In the six years I was there, I met so many new people, but they were all great. You get to develop relationships with people from all over the world, and it's awesome. But then when you leave that and you're back in your civilian life, not that that's not good either, but you miss that camaraderie. You miss that connection. It really is like just being disconnected from our purpose too. What do I do now? Uh, Reservists have feet in both areas, their military side and their civilian side. But when they're full-time military, it might be difficult, not all of them, but it might be difficult to figure out, okay, what do I do now after I'm retired? How can I still keep my feet wet in that area? And then there's other things, issues that come up with family when families are with us full-time or when they're not, when I'm at a different duty station or I'm deployed and my family members decide they don't want to wait for me. Kids go to different, in different places and directions. So I think transitions can be tough too. Mm -hmm. So does that sound familiar with what your colleague was saying? He said relationships. He said it's all about relationships. The majority of the work that he does is with Vietnam vets. I think you're Mm -hmm. right in your particular area about the disconnection from purpose. I've seen that with some of the military and even with my own son, who you know was in Iraq twice. Mm -hmm. They're important and they have a mission. They know what they're doing. 
I remember Kyle having a difficult challenge with people's complaints when he came home. I know he came home from mm-hmm. from Iraq where it was hellaciously hot. It was summertime here and people were complaining when it got to be 90 degrees. Kyle just wanted to scream at them. It's like, 90 degrees, you're complaining that it's hot, or people's biggest problem is that their pool liner got scratched and they had to drain their pool and put in a new liner. And it's like, when you're not in the military, your problems are truly first world problems, right? Mm -hmm. And when you come from the military, you've seen other scenarios. It's been sometimes third world areas, certainly in hard conditions, eating MREs out of a can. I don't know if that stands for meals, something in a can. (laughs) It's nothing good. That's the nourishment that you get. You sleep underneath the Humvee in the desert to get some shade. Who can sleep like that? It's difficult, difficult circumstances. Sometimes when you're out on maneuvers, you don't even have the sleep Mm -hmm. that you need to be at the top of your game. Mm -hmm. And then you come home and the people that you left behind, your good, good friends who you have memories with and you try to reconnect with them. And it's surreal because you've lived Mm -hmm. a year of a totally different life and you may have some trouble reconnecting. So I do agree with the connection piece. I think that Mm -hmm. is a big thing. Yeah. And when we're looking at our, our five needs, right? The survival, freedom, joy, connection, and significance. I think the two that are depleted the most is the significance and the connection because the others feed into those needs. You know, I can remember in our little special programs office, you know, we would just make each other laugh like throughout the day at just the funniest things. And then there's times where when we had, you know, serious stuff happening where it's like my ad co, you know, she was the alcohol and drug coordinator, you know, and my um, sharp person and I were all in the same office and and we'd have an incident happen. You got to explain Sharp is the, um, let's see if I can remember this acronym correctly. They're the ones who deal with sexual assault, harassment, if that's their program. So you've got all three of us, special programs, suicide prevention, Sharp and Adco all in the same area, right? And What is the third one you said? I don't know that either. Adco is alcohol drug coordinator. There you go. Okay. We would frequently work together in similar situations. We would go train together. It made sense. And we would allow ourselves in our own goofiness and connection to engage the soldiers at the unit in a training. It really just brought it home. Whenever it was like, oh, you have to do these annual trainings. Everybody has to do annual trainings every year, like refresher courses, like their CEUs, right? Continuing education Uh credits. And every year you have to do something on suicide prevention, something on sexual assault harassment, and something on alcohol and drug use. And usually when you say, oh, yeah, we got to do this training, you know, that everybody rolls their eyes all But I actually myself did not want to have another dry PowerPoint. So we really got people engaged. And so when the three of us came on, we made sure it was interactive and funny and very to the point. And they went out of there with a purpose. That's what we tried to shift. I miss those colleagues and doing that kind of work. Now, after I resigned, we tried to do it on the civilian side with a couple of retired service members that don't want to kind of carry on that mission. And we tried to reach out to the community with suicide prevention and wellness. After doing your mental freedom class and listening to the verbiage, especially with suicide awareness, 
it's so easy to be able to incorporate mental freedom with that topic Mm -hmm. because the stigma or the bias when somebody chooses suicide, because it is a choice, there's all kinds of things that people perceive about why and what happened because it doesn't make sense for the survivor. Where we're going to change the trajectory of that decision is having a conversation with that person who's at risk and allowing them to connect to the helper or to whoever they're talking to just to get them safe for now. But it's that initial connection to have permission to talk about it because they probably feel like if I say something, what are they going to think of me? That's the point we really brought across too, is that when you talk about suicide, first of all, you don't want to talk about it. Most people don't. But when you have somebody at risk, who is at risk, what do we do? Well, let's just have a conversation. Give that person permission to know that they can choose differently. It's not about fixing somebody because you're not going to do that. It's about let's just give you permission to have a conversation and be safe for now. That's what we want to do. Almost like the drug and alcohol theme one day at a time. Yeah. I know I'm not going to kill myself today. That's good. Tomorrow, same thing. I know I'm not going to kill myself today. Do you have anything you would want to say to either a service member who might be listening or a family member who loves a service member that might be listening? Like, what could they do to help themselves or to help their loved ones? The biggest thing is knowing that if that person that you're living with or somebody you care about is really struggling, if you feel like, oh my God, what do I do? Because it's a very panicked incident when it does happen. And I've had to deal with that recently with even my own family. Okay, let's just calm down a minute. Is that person safe right now? And when the answer is yes, then okay, let's have a conversation. And if you can't have that conversation because you're so emotionally charged, then who's on that 911 line that you can talk to? Is it the 988 suicide prevention hotline? Is it another family member? Is it another battle buddy? Is it a friend? Because there is always somebody that can help you to help that person. It's having that plan to just get them safe for now, knowing that giving them permission to have a conversation, like I said, is the best thing that you can do. I hate to say this, but we're running out of time already. That's okay. (laughs) I just want to ask if there's anything you'd like to add to what we've already talked about that you didn't get to say. I don't think so. I'm excited to continue with your mental freedom path. I love the work. I've always loved the work. I use it all the time. I use it with my clients in my private practice. It's good stuff. Most of the time when you even initiate the five moves, you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. (laughs) It's really great material. It can be used in all parts of your life. So thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. So if somebody listening to this podcast wanted to reach out to you, is there a way for them to get in contact with you? Yes, I have an email, Connect for Balance. It's C-O-N-N-E-C-T for B-A-L at gmail.com. My practice is both telehealth and in person in the northwest suburbs of Illinois in the Roselle Inverness area. Email is the best way to reach me. I really appreciate you joining us today, Carm. I know you schedule, which makes it so special that you're willing to talk to us. So thank you. Thank you, Kim. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Michelle Mokert about her work as the coach for trailblazing women. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. 
This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.